Hello, everybody. My name is Kevin Verga, and I'm joined as always by the spectacular Devin D'Agostino. Devin, how are you? I am happy to be here. Excited to talk about some talking heads. Oh, nice. I'm happy that you're happy to be here because we have a pretty interesting episode coming up. We have another two for one, this time with the opening numbers of the 1979 album Fear of Music. Devin, what songs are we doing this week? Today we are doing I, Zimbra and Mind. Cue the music. Exactly what you said. Cue the music and we dive into Izimbra. I guess is the most natural way to start. That's how the album starts. That's how Talking Heads chose to dive into this pretty wacky album. And honestly, Devin, I feel like we're standing uh, at the precipice of something. I really have no idea how this episode is going to go. I feel like in the 30 to 90 minutes of this episode, on the other side of that, we're going to be very different people. So I, I really, I'm going to throw it back to you. Like, where, where do we start? Where do we go from here? Well, Kevin, I actually know exactly where we're going to go because later on when we stopped making sense, I'm going to be talking about pre-ordination and determinism. But before we get there, I want to say that it's very appropriate that you picked this song because to start off by referring to a movie I haven't yet seen, Mm -hmm. as per Devin and Kevin's Stop Making Sense tradition. Spoilers for the soundtrack of the new Spider-Man movie. Spider-Man, Home Alone, yeah. Just for the soundtrack. Phone Home, E.T., soundtrack only. I haven't seen the movie, like I said, but I'm going (laughs) to speak about it. All right, soundtrack spoiler. Let's hear it. iZimbra has had sort of a renaissance, a rebirth. It's now in the Talking Heads top 10 listen to songs on Spotify because it's the opening number in this new Spider-Man movie. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. So very appropriate, very relevant to the time we're in. You know, that's interesting. It's the opening number of the Spider-Man movie. Really meant to be the the winter blockbuster this year that millions of people are supposed to see. And whoever is in charge of the music for this pretty important movie they chose Izimbra, another classic opener, an interesting one that's going to kind of cut the grounding from below a lot of people's legs. Why do you think that if you're the sound designer for this movie, it's good to start with Izimbra? Or if you're the producer of Fear of Music, why is it good to start with Izimbra? I'm very happy to muse about why the sound designer chose Izimbra to start Spider-Man since I haven't seen Spider-Man and have no idea what the movie is about or how it begins. But it gets you going. Mm. How about that? That bongo beat, that do 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 do. I mean, it's a it gets you there, started and ready to go, for lack of a better explanation. Mm. 
I, I like how you just dove into that question with really no sense of grounding. I mean, Devin, if there's anything that we can rely on you on this show is that you will fully and confidently dive into a subject matter that you really have very little <laughs> backing in, mostly in media, but then you're able to back it up, you know, about 30 minutes in with some level of information that you've obviously diligently studied. So it's the beauty of the yin and the yang that you, you bring in. And I don't know, maybe I'm just stalling right now because Izimbra to me has always been such a wall of unobtainability. It just has been so elusive to me, probably on purpose, considering its history in Dadaism, which I'm sure we'll dive into a little bit more. But it is only until very recently, probably when we went to go see American Utopia together, where I really felt like it settled into my brain, into my mind. And I started to like the song where I will willingly throw it on and feel like it's familiar to me. And that's nice because the song is fantastic and it really doesn't sound like anything else. There's really no other song like Izimbra. And I think that's pretty amazing. Well, speaking about like what it sounds like and interpretations, I mean, Dada, I only learned about from watching American Utopia. But before that, and I think Byrne refers to it or someone referred to it somewhere, is I thought it was in some African dialect, which is, on, which is usually the interpretation of this song. And it makes sense because you do have a lot of African beats and actually Jerry Harrison talks about, I read a quote from him. This is his favorite song from the Talking Heads. And he says that the style of Remain in the Light, which has very strong um, inspiration from different African music styles like Afrobeat, Fela Kuti, that album is indebted to the work done in Izimbra. So it's almost like a preview of what was to come for the Talking Heads. So that's an interesting way to look at it. It's starting this album that marks a transition in the Talking Heads repertoire, musical endeavors, from that more grounded country sort of feel to what they come to next. Yeah, so talk about transition. To go from the big country, like you said, a country feel. Yeah. Now, like, imagine you're, you know, you're waiting for the next Talking Heads album to come out. So the day before its release, you listen to 77, and then the day of the release, you listen to more songs about buildings and food. You have your record playing. It's great. You flip it over. Finally, you listen to the whole side B. And then the big country concludes. You're like, okay, I'll go to the record store. You pick up your copy of Fear of Music. You throw it on. And I Zimbra comes on. The absolute sucker punch that comes from that as the opener is pretty phenomenal. And like you said, it's definitely a change. And foreshadows they're more... Um, funky and world music influenced future that's ahead of them but then going on to like later songs like maybe paper uh harkens back to those earlier punkier tunes but um you know i borrowed that word sucker punch from the author jonathan lethem which does the 33 and a third um book on this album fear of music which you gifted me very kindly the day we went to go see american utopia so I feel like I'll be quoting that book and I just want to bring it up now. But yeah, he called it a sucker punch of an, of an album opener that just punches you right in the face. You're not expecting it. And I can't say that um, my experience with the album is any different. I think it's just like such a shift and that's pretty cool. This is a conversation I don't want to have right now, but I want to save in our back pockets for another time potential future podcast episode because I never really only recently have I started listening to albums as like a single entity from start to finish in order looking at an album as a one single story 
versus each song as an individual because like if most of these songs are meant to be aired on the radio they weren't going to be aired or no i guess uh, i guess i can't speak to that was it more for people buying a record or hearing it on the radio but i think that's an interesting conversation for another time yeah well i mean i like how you started that sentence because usually people will say how you started that sentence is like oh this isn't a conversation i want to have right now and that's usually something someone will say to me oftentimes where I'm talking about the complexities of Izimra. But that's actually how you introduce that book to me. And I very much recommend that 33 and a third book to anyone who likes the album Fear of Music or feels like they want to learn more about it. Because I've really developed a habit of pulling that book out on the subway and listening to the album like straight through, you know, starting with Izimra, reading where I last le- left off in that book. And then when Izimbra ends, even if I'm not done with the chapter, I'll flip to mind. And then I'll read until I'm done with that, until that song ends, and I'll keep reading. And it's been a very neurotic way to travel, uh, to like get off a subway in the middle of life during wartime and like try to be a human being walking through this the subway of New York is pretty difficult. I've been very thankful for you to introduce that to me because I think that had something to do with my more familiarity with songs like I Zimbra and ultimately the album as a whole, which has become one of my favorites. When when we originally like dove into this album, I think that was our third episode. We did Memories Can't Wait. And at that point, I really only knew Life During Wartime. And then we did Cities with Will Beatrice, and then we did Air. Like we're, this is our fourth and fifth song off this album. And I've just been getting more and more familiar with it and realizing how absolutely phenomenal it is. It's really exciting. So thank you. I credit you uh, very much for that. Thank you. Have I ever told you when I really dove into Fear of Music? Please, please tell me. I was working in Rutgers Laboratory studying immortal, multipotent, Optic pluripotent cells. Definitely not what it was. It was a couple of years ago. But I was cloning cell vectors in a laboratory and to keep me going while I would do it, I would listen to Fear of Music. So just an interesting context. I think it fits much better a subway than a biology lab. But context, placement, like we were sort of talking about before, it all fits together. It's interesting that you say it fits more in a subway, which I guess, I mean, there's a song called Cities off of the album. What do you think about as an album for a laboratory that's very sterile? I'm not so sure. I guess Talking Heads fits in right away. But you know, I remember you having that internship, Devin. And I remember that summer very vividly. And I remember a very specific moment. And I'm worried about bringing it up because it it seemed to have moved you a lot. And I'm just worried about bringing it up right now. So just like trigger warning. Or do you want me to talk about it? Should we bring it on? up? I'm not sure what you're referring to. <laughs> well, you know, You've given me your express consent, so I'll go in. I remember standing in the lobby of one of of the residence halls, and you walked up to me visibly shaken. And this was like a Friday night, I think. So we were surrounded by people that were like ready to go out and have a good time. We, you and I were on the outskirts of this situation, as we often find ourselves. And I like had to ask you, hey, Dev, how was your day? What's going on? And you told me, about how you spent your day at the laboratory, which was, um, how do I put this? Uh, just like humanely killing mice. <laughs> do you remember this? Yeah, like humanely, do you want to finish the rest of it? Because you might have a better way of explaining. Well, I'm going to talk about a time that mice were killed inhumanely in front of me. 
because that's what it just brought back to me. The way we would kill mice, it sucked, but you, you have to kill the mice in the laboratory because you use them for experiments. And then if they don't have the proper genome, you get rid of them. It's really brutal and messed up. Um, but you put them in a tank where you take away all the oxygen. It's supposed to be a very painless death. And then you break their necks just in case they're only passed out and not completely dead. No, so they don't freeze. <laughs> no, no, no. But, <laughs> and you take away the oxygen and it should be a painless death. And then you break their necks. Not to make light of it, but that did make no, me please. laugh. But we need, they, for this lab, they needed the fetal ear cells because they're undifferentiated and they can be used to make these stem cells, which they were using for research. And at one moment, there was a pregnant mother, mouse, and she was having trouble with the pregnancy. I can't remember what it was. And so the graduate student who worked there in front of me, without sedating the mouse, without giving it any anesthetics, gave it a C-section, pulled out the fetus. The C-section obviously killed it. It was alive when it, she cut in, pulled out the fetuses and chopped off their heads as soon as. So they literally opened their eyes, saw the light of day, only to have their heads chopped off and their ears removed. It was really horrific. And it's something that I haven't thought about for a long time. I think I'd repressed down. So thank you for, <laughs> and now I'll always associate Izimbra with it and never be able to enjoy the song again. I'm, I'm pretty sorry to you, but I'm more sorry to the listener um, for having brought this up. You, I know um, we could have more conversations and like process this together. Um, I'm sorry that happened to you, Devin. That sounded very intense. It made me queasy, and I am just hearing you talk about it. I looked up a couple of live versions of Izimbra. The version that was cut out, I'm not going to use that word, excised <laughs> from, <laughs> from making sense. And it ends in a theremin solo. And then I found another version, them, same year, like 1983, 1984, playing on Letterman. And it ends in a theremin solo. Both times they played a little drummer boy at the end of Izimbra. Yes. Is there any significance there? I did notice that. So Izimbra was combined with Big Business, um, another a duo. And that was um, snipped out, chopped out, cut out, uh, forcibly removed from... Uh, <laughs> Stop making sense. Uh, from stop making sense, it was removed along with cities. Another fear of music song. So that's interesting in itself, and we can maybe dive into like why that song was removed and and why it's good and why it's bad and why it should see the light of day. But yes, you're right. I did notice that, and that David Byrne at the end hops up onto that little like bass keyboard that Tina Weymouth plays in a later song and plays the little drummer boy, and then kind of modulates and and improvises on top of it into like this kind of mess of a of a solo but that's how they ended and i didn't know they ended on leatherman but i have seen them and what a bold song to play on a tonight show to open their album to go and promote their album using and i know that american utopia i think went on jimmy fallon or or one of those late nights and played eisenberg as well so it's interesting that they use that as like the promotional material for their uh concert films and it's also a weird way to end. Little drummer boy. Why? Why that? It's in the same key? I don't even know. It's unique. Do you do you have any reason why you think it may have, uh, for any of those reasons, why they'd play it on late night? Why they'd use the little drummer boy as a little modulated solo? What do you think? It's well. I think maybe it was the only song that David Byrne knew how to play on the theremin. And he wanted the theremin in it. So, you know, <laughs> stuck, stick with what you know. But it works. But you know what? It's kind of absurd. And if we can, I think we got to talk a little bit about Dadaism. Let's let's do it. Let's hop into Dada, shall we? 
yeah, let's do it. So correct me if I'm wrong, but this song was adopted from a Hugo Ball poem. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And I did just some little overview of Dadaism. Um, some delved into it a little bit, but Dadaism was sort of a response to World War I, the chaos of the time, and the absurdity of rationality. That this rational thought, look where it brought us to this tragic war that killed millions of people. How do we exist in this society? Instead of following these rules, let's throw it all away. And it's associated with like childishness and absurdity, which I thought aligns really well with themes of talking head songs. We talk about that naivete, right? And sort of just like the wildness of it. And also I want to bring in too, before I get your thoughts, is when we talk about Dadaism being a reaction to war, this aligns well with, of course, life during wartime, which is about the absurdity of war, right? This person reverting back to this really primeval, banal state as they face the chaos of a wartime. So yes, uh, this song was based off a Hugo Ball poem called Gaji Berry Bimba, which are also the opening lyrics to Izimbra. Um, if you can call them lyrics, I guess you can. And yes, uh, like you mentioned earlier and just now, I learned about Dadaism primarily from American Utopia and seeing it on Broadway where he goes into the background of how the Dadaists um, came to popularity in the 1930s as the Great Depression was raging and uh, a lot of European countries were slipping into fascism. And he says that Dadaism and even this poem specifically was to show that there were independent thinkers Gachi still left out there. Again, another reason to love this seemingly nonsensical song and poem. Like Izimbra, obviously Izimbra is, is sung in a chant-like thing, but it was more, like you said, primal. And it sounded like it could have been done over a cauldron on a fire. And um, I found a, a funny comment under this, uh, this video of it. So I credit this comment to uh, Demon Soda. And I think he puts um, a lot of my views and love of talking heads into uh, into words very well, especially regarding Izimbra. Demon Soda says, I looked up creepiest song ever, and this is what I get. This ain't even creepy, but I love it a lot. And I like that. I feel like it is initially kind of uncomfortable, but after a while, you're like, I actually kind of love this. I mean, we talked about a little bit in our American Utopia reaction. If Slippery People is the transition into, all right, I'm fully a part of this, Izimbra builds up that tension. It almost primes you. Maybe that's why it's the first song. It prepares you for that next step to be a part of the concert. I don't know why. Maybe we can get some clarity here. Maybe it's just absurd association. But I keep thinking of like Igor Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. He talked about scary songs and also like primeval feelings. I don't know if it's related to the Dada moment at all or it's just some random association. For some reason, I always associate Izimbra and that like Rite of Spring, which starts... I'm not going to dun, 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 dun. You know what I mean? <laughs> the really freaky primeval, like the beginning of society, culture, sacrificial. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good uh, relation. I mean, you said that 
Dadaism comes from the reaction from World War One primarily. But I think Red of Spring came out right at the beginning of World War One or during it, maybe even probably maybe before it. I don't know. I'm just I'm just kind of riffing here in that there was still like safe theaters to go to. And like that was the biggest problem in people's lives was art. And like the Rite of Spring made people get into this frenzied state, which might more closely emulate this poetic recitation of Gaja Berry Bimba versus the more musical, fun, Izimbra funky dance that gets um, played in American Utopia, which actually Izimbra is the song before Slippery People. So you're right. It really does prime the the motors for people to really kind of get into this frenzied, dancey state in Slippery People. But they need it definitely needs to be primed. And maybe that's why it's the opener, this kind of false sucker punch opener, because Izimbra just like primes you. It can't really be the main event. That's why like Mind to me kind of feels like the true first song on the album where you're like, oh, there's David Byrne, there's the guitar, there's Tina. Like, I feel like, oh, now I know these people versus this like chorus, wall of chorus chanting. Then you can kind of settle into it. I threw a lot at you there. And I don't even remember where I even started. I think at the Red of Spring. I got into this frenzied state just thinking about Red of Spring. So I'm just going to throw all that energy back to you and see what, uh, what sticks and what lands. No, I'm feeling primed. I was going to say, would you mind jumping into mind? Oh, I wouldn't mind jumping into mind. I wouldn't mind jumping into mind either. So if you don't mind, audience, mind the time because we are going to combine Izimbra and mind as we talk about the second song on Fear of Music. Not your brain, not your head, dualism, Cartesians, body and mind. So where do we hop in in mind? I guess you just start on that first second, that guitar part that sounds like harmonics, feedback, that goes into that creepy, crawly guitar part before David Byrne starts singing. And to me, that part kind of reminds me of the hatching of an idea, the lighting up of a mind, and then the extrapolation of a full thought pattern that just keeps cycling and cycling before David Byrne dives into time won't change you money won't change you I haven't got the faintest idea Deb I, I haven't got the faintest idea of where to even start with this song again I thought that mind was going to be someplace to ground myself but I feel like we're up in the air I think it's interesting that you say opening of the mind because I think this song is all about the closing of the mind I mean, it's obviously about someone stubborn. I actually took it a degree further and I said it was almost deterministic because all of these things, I mean, throughout the song, he says that time doesn't change you, money doesn't change you, drugs, religion, science, all of these things that we think are so impactful and so powerful and so influential in our lives is not impacting this person. And I almost looked at it from like a nature or nurture perspective and that the brain, the core genetic makeup those inherent a priori thoughts we're born with is what this person is fully ruled by. And the nature, time, money, drugs, religion, science, experience, whatever it may be, just doesn't seem to impact that. I mean, firstly, you caught me right away where you're like talking about the opening of the mind versus the closing of the mind, because I've been focusing so closely on, for this song, the opening of the song or Izimbra as an opener. You know, what does it even mean musically? Like, oh, it's the album opener. 
or, oh, let's play this song live. It's the opener of the show. Like you said, to get to slippery people, you kind of have to like open it up and let people in. But you're right. Lyrically, this song is about closing your mind. I really want to focus on this narrator because like a lot of songs by Talking Heads, and especially ones off Fear of Music, you can't really trust the narrator because he keeps talking and talking about how time won't change you and money and drugs and religion and science and even I can't change you. But I need something to change your mind. I need, he's pleading over and over again. So who is this you? They must be some closed-minded fool. That person must be an asshole. They're not listening to David Byrne or whoever this narrator is. But if you can jump towards the end of like this kind of coda section, I try to talk to you to make things clear. And you're not even listening to me. And it comes directly from my heart to you. Up until that last line where it comes directly from my heart to you, I was really trusting this narrator. I really think he was trying to look out for this person and change his mind. But once he said that, where it's coming from his heart, I really thought that the narrator was the closed-minded person. He's not listening. There's no backwards feedback. There's not a single thing where he's listening. It's always just him trying to change his mind. So maybe the person he's talking to is a closed-minded person, but I think the person speaking is also closed-minded, which is an important thing to realize when you're having a conversation, like maybe the one that we're having right now. And it says a lot about me. I went from a more general standpoint. I'm viewing the narrator as this like omnipotent, reliable, trustworthy source when I haven't really stopped and analyzed. The narrator is trying to convince this person. Maybe they're completely wrong. They're not using any logic. I mean, granted, they're trying different tactics, science, religion, money, time, but maybe they don't have the right idea. So I like taking it from either the general perspective or the one-on-one perspective, which I've done before. And I don't want to go too deep into this because this is what I want to stop making sense with. The idea between emotionality and rationality, feelings and and using our rational brains, because it's something I've been encountering and reading and stuff um, in philosophy. This idea, this sort of tension between should we be controlled by rationality or should we be controlled by emotions? Is there a balance between the two? Is cold, objective rationality always the optimal way to be? Or is there points when we need to trust our emotions, trust our feelings? I got to give the narrator a little credit because he doesn't start with him trying to change this person's mind. He really tries a lot of things. He talks about time. He tries money. He tries drugs, he tries religion, he tries science, and finally, he tries himself, where he says, science won't change you, looks like I can't change you. And he kind of gives up. All these things can't change you, so it looks like I can't. And you kind of have to just say, I did my best. I'm trying to make things clear, but you're not listening to me, and it comes directly from my heart to you, and you move on. So talk about emotionality and rationality. I felt a very strong sense of frustration around the song. Firstly, with me trying to recreate the song, it's very difficult. The, the guitar parts and the bass lines are very, it's a very angular, weird song. So I was getting frustrated just by trying to build this song up again to prepare for this episode. And then when I was going back and listening to the lyrics, I just realized how frustrated this, this singer is. When he says drugs won't change you, religion won't change you, he has this aside where he says, what's the matter with, I haven't gotten the faintest idea. He's trying to lead with logic, But when the logic isn't listened to, he has this emotional, frustrated reaction that kind of turns into this level of uh, despair, where he says, everything seems to be up in the air at this point. 
you kind of you realize that maybe that's when I kind of started to turn and say like, oh, this narrator is very emotional. They're they're leading with logic, but they're obviously getting very frustrated. What are we talking about? What is the narrator trying to change this person's mind about? Because they need something to change their mind. What could be so important, right? What could you need to change their mind about? Your opinion on someone, the choice you're going to make. What do you think it is? Probably one of those tough conversations that you don't want to have over a holiday dinner. Most reactively, and, and of course, it's just the most topical thing that we've had throughout the duration of this show, is COVID. And I just kept thinking that you're trying to convince an anti-masker, an anti-vaxxer to protect themselves. That's when I got to that CODA section where he's like, I try to talk to you to make things clear, but you're not even listening to me. And it comes directly from my heart to you. A lot of times that these anti-mask, anti-vax movements come from a sense of control and not wanting to be controlled. But oftentimes they're not coming from Dr. Fauci or some governmental official. It's coming from your cousin, your daughter, your spouse. And it really does try to come from your heart. And they're not trying to control you. They're trying to protect you. And that's just the, the practical image that came to me to try to ground this very up in the air song. And I found it also interesting that he says, everything seems to be up in the air at this point. Air also being, of course, a song off this album that we talked about and related strongly to COVID and also to a lot more timely things when this, song, when this album came out in 1979. I wonder what the main talking point and political discussion and cultural war was going on back in 1979 that maybe it could have been more attributed back then. And that's what's sort of cool about this album as a whole. Now that you say that, I'm thinking about the different songs of Fear of Music. And I think it has to do with the fact that the lyrics are pretty sparse. It is pretty generalized. And they're applicable to a lot of different times. Life during wartime, easily applicable to COVID, right? Air, we talked about it. Cities, Memories Can't Wait. All these different songs can be applied to any time period because they deal with sort of these overarching facets of human experience. They're universally applicable. We can enjoy them so much. We can appreciate them so much because they seem like they were written for us when really they're written for some totally different scenario or maybe they were written to be general. And that's taken to the extreme with Izimbra with no lyrical meaning, which can be interpreted and implied in any way you choose it to be. Take this album how you want it. Don't take it any way. These words are meaningless. They're put in your context. More so than more songs about buildings and food that feel very stagnant. Like, I love Found a Job. I love the big country. But it doesn't have the overarching applicability that I found with these Fear of Music songs that we discussed. And I think at the root of it is in the title, Fear. Fear is so primal. It's built, baked into our nervous system to be afraid, and that's what motivates us. No, maybe it's why, like, I'm associating with Stravinsky, that primal rite of spring. I think it really is. It's this fear of music, this strange relationship, like that very early relationship where we're fascinated and we're curious. Human beings were driven by curiosity, but there's also that fear that rustling in the branches could be something very good, could be a new, new group of people that could help us. We could also be a saber-toothed tiger about to eat you. And this conflict with music too, and ceremony and tradition and practice, and this tension between the two, this naivety, which gives a lot to be excited about, a lot to be curious about, but also a lot to be afraid of. It's such a malleable album. And like why I can just hop on a subway, pull out the book and just start from the top of the album. And because Izimbra is the opener, it gets me into this like blank sheet of like, there's nothing to grasp onto. There's no lyrics. It, I'm just working what I have in my mind today. And it just kind of riles me up. 
and then throws me into mind. And I'm like, okay, what's on my mind today? What am I trying to convince myself to do or convince others to do? And you just like follow through the album and you just have like this new fresh take of fear. I think that's really something special. I will have a forever appreciation for these two songs as openers to the to an album. I think it's just brilliant. Should we hear should we hear a word from our sponsors? Let's hear a word from our sponsors. I think that, that that'd be great. Today our sponsor is the Dadaist. Thanks so much. Again, that was the Dadaist. Okay, back to it. <laughs> I was just I really, really feeling it. Try yeah. it, man. Give your own. Go for it. I'm scared. Just let it take you. I'll give you a first word because that they would. I, I was reading a little bit into Dadaism, and it would be a lot of like back and forth too. So I'm going to give you a word, and you just play with it and take it. All right. Polo. 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 Just keep saying it until it forms into something else. Polo. 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 Mine. Sweet. Bloop. Zimwa. Blunska. That was really freeing, actually. It feels good, right? Yeah, it does feel good. Wow. It's good to escape that rationality sometimes. Wow. You know, I found a little bit of sense in the nonsense of Izimbra. And before we stop making sense, maybe we can make some sense of the nonsense of of Izimbra. What do you say? Does that make sense? Let's make some sense and make sense of our with using our senses. Yeah. Over the fences. Oh, is this Dadaism again? No, that was more no, slam poetry. Slam poetry. That yeah. was kind of beatnik poetry, which is also, I think, very popular in the 30s. So. And what's that, that famous poem, Howl, by um, Allen Ginsberg, mm. was supposedly inspired by Dadaism. So a lot really? of that spoken word, like slam poetry, has a root in Dadaism. Hmm. Well, here's my, here's my sense I found in the nonsense. Using my senses of sight. It wasn't my sense of hearing, which I usually use in these, but it's my sense of sight. Because when I was like, okay, we're going to do Izimbra, usually we print off the lyric sheets for these songs. I was like, is there even a point of printing off the lyric sheets? And there was, I think, because it helped me realize that the, uh, how to pronounce ga, ji, berry, bi, ba, gla, dridi, la. I thought that was important to know. But anyway, we get to that. And then we get to the third line, I guess you can call it, of the song. And it goes, ah. Bimberry Glasala. Ah Bimberry Glasala, which I felt sounded eerily similar to glossolalia, which is something you've taught me, which is speaking in tongues, which might just be this naturally occurring nice sound that your tongue and mind kind of want to just say while you're speaking in tongues. What, what do you think of that? A guttural stop, some might say. Guttural oh, pause. Yeah. What was it? I can't even remember. A glottal space. <laughs> space. A glottal space. No, that's fascinating. And it was something too, because I was thinking about like Dadaism. And I was trying to do, you know, that Dada association. I was like, 
Am I confusing glossalia and Dadaism? Or are they connected in some way? And I think they definitely are. That sort of free speaking, because it's a lot about the release, right? The release from rationality and embracing that absurdity and that chaos. I think yeah. it's a very clear connection. I think that's interesting. I think you need to have sense to make the nonsense really nonsense. Because if David Byrne really wanted to lose you with Izimbra during American Utopia, he wouldn't have to take a full stop, stop the whole production and stand and give a little history lesson about Dadaism and explain the uh, primeval sonata also by Hugo Ball before hopping into Izimbra. If he really wanted to lose you, he would just go right into it and be kind of crazy. I guess that's what the album does. But for some reason, he stops. And my favorite part of the Primeval Sonata is where he goes, rock da baby. That's my favorite part. Yeah, I do like that. <laughs> but anyway, now it got me going with the Dadaism. But, it's um, fun, right? Yeah. But anyway, like I just, I just found it interesting that glossala syllable was in there. And it just is, it's so talking heads because of, the, of course, the album Speaking in Tongues. And I feel like we, we first brought up in this show, Glossolalia, when we talked about, I think it was something off Remain in Light. It was either Cross-Eyed and Painless or The Great Curve. I wasn't sure. It's um, Slippery People because he has that moment of Glossolalia when he goes, ba 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 Which, of course, yeah. full circle moment is the song that comes after I Zimbra in American Utopia. There's a reason, and maybe that's why he situates Izimbra before speaking before Slippery People, because that is going to be your moment of release. It's building up that tension for the final release in that moment of speaking in tongues. Wow. Last point about the lyrics, maybe. Yeah, please. Is that there's nonsense, we can say. But obviously, there's a song structure to this. The closest we have to a chorus is at the end of each verse. It goes, I Zimbra. It has that kind of turnaround. But I Zimbra doesn't make, it's not words. It's not like anything catchy, but it's the name of the song. It's that turnaround point that we feel like, oh, no, that part, just the way it's delivered. Oh, no, we can, we can restart now. That's the end of the verse. I understand. I understand that form enough to know that the verse has come to an end and we're going to move to a different part of the song. As humans are like, have music baked into us so much and these song forms baked into us that even when the words are nonsensical and even the sound and the beats and the funkiness of the song is a little unfamiliar, just the way you deliver by so something by saying, I Zimbra, hey, even a baby, if you just all start cheering, will be like, hey, there we go. I can kind of catch on and go back to the top. So there is a little bit of sense in there now like looking at these lyrics that really just look like a primordial ooze of letters now it's starting to make sense like first three words are the the title of the hugo ball lyric now i see like glasala i see izimbra it's starting to piece together it's kind of starting to make sense i got two quick two more quick things for you from that so first it was interesting how you talk about like izimbra we find it as something that roots us Human beings, like, you know, we talk about a lot how human beings are sort of like pattern making machines. It's what helped us to survive. It's what helped us to adapt. And the big thing about language is it is, it's a bunch of nonsense sounds put together and we give meaning to them. I mean, we talked about it way back in episode one when we were discussing the glottal space, which is this sort of universal form of communication. And the fact that words that lamp, there's nothing inherent in a lamp that makes it want to be called lamp. And yet we've designated these sounds for it. So that's interesting. And then I want to give you this because I think it's something you'll be able to take it to a better place than I can. Izimbra is cut out of 
can't even say it anymore. This episode was also brought to you by PETA. We want to thank PETA very much, our sponsors. Um, <laughs> but by Zimber's Cut Out of Stop Making Sense. It's a song that makes no sense. And it's cut out of Stop Making Sense where it seems most appropriate. And I think with concerts, we can really say that in a lot of ways, those are specifically designed to tell a story. Or at least concert films, perhaps the artists have in mind the story they're trying to tell. But we don't have Izimber in that story. But in American Utopia, which is supposed to make sense, it's supposed to present this utopian society, we have the absurd Izimbra featured prominently. And it's often like a song in there, in the advertisements they have for the show, they'll have Izimbra playing in the background. So it's clearly important, essential to the show. What do you make of that? It's not in Stop Making Sense, but it's in the thing that's supposed to make sense. Interesting. Interesting. Wow. I, I'm really finding it interesting the more we talk about it, like you said, how a new population of listeners are being introduced to Talking Heads through Izimbra from the beginning of Spider-Man. So they sat through all of Spider-Man, a pretty action-packed movie. I haven't seen it either. But they sat through all of Spider-Man and remembered enough to, when they got home, was like, what the hell was that first song? I want to look up Izimbra and push it to the top of the Talking Heads most played songs. The Talking Heads and then also the troupe of American Utopia chose to use Izimbra in their promotional material when they were playing on light night shows. I find that fascinating. At first we said, how do we even tackle this beast of a song? It has no rationality. How could anyone possibly understand it? But maybe that's what makes it so appealing and far reaching is that it's just a clean slate. You can attach anything you want to it. And that's what's amazing. You just kind of groove your way out of it. Kind of like when we were talking about the great curve, the best way to really understand it is to just dance to it. I think that's the same with Izimbra. And it's just even more so. I've really moved <laughs> within this conversation about my feelings about the song. I just want to play out this scenario for a second. You're a huge Talking Heads fan and a huge Spider-Man fan. You couldn't wait for the new movie, right? You're in your Spider-Man costume. You go to the midnight showing. You're so excited. You're also a Talking Heads fan, and you really feel like you have a grasp. You listen to all the songs. You find meaning of them. You've really interpreted the lyrics, somewhat like what we do, but you're just really dedicated. But Izimber's always been the thing you haven't been able to tackle. And it's at the start of fear of music, and it like gives you that fear. And you try to ignore it. You try to stay away from it because you like those lyrics. You're at Spider-Man. You're very excited. The credits roll. The film starts. You hear that opening bongo bass line and you break into a cold sweat as Izimbra plays in the background. The entire movie destroyed because ringing in your ears throughout is that Izimbra repeating over and over again the Dada chaos, the absurdity. You go home, you sob, you're covered in tears and fears and tears for fears. And I don't know, I had something there and I lost it, but just. Do you feel it? Do you see it with me? I do. I do. If you didn't tell me, I haven't seen Spider-Man yet, and I really love the first two movies and the previous uh, trilogies, I would have been pretty psyched had I... Uh, you really did spoil the soundtrack. I that was pretty phenomenal. Yeah. But that just shows how much we care about this band, is that we're like, oh, soundtrack spoiler, the talking heads are in there. And of course, I think the, I think the new Spider-Man is called No Way Home. So you're supposed to really like take away the home base from someone you're trying to establish that put a dadaist funk song as the top of your uh, at the top of your movie i think that's pretty effective i'm gonna go with a spider-man showing just for izimbra get really excited cheer at the end of izimbra then walk out 
<laughs> in a big Spider-Man suit. Yes. In a David yes. Byrne suit on a Spider-Man. Yeah. It's too many asses. <laughs> Spider suit. I want to stop making sense if you you'll do. join me. Sure. Let's do me. it. We spoke previously about emotion and rationality. And it was interesting that you brought that up because I wanted to talk about something that was really a response to rationality and a rejection of rationality saying, let's move away from this pure rational feel, rational sense of the world and ground ourselves in only faith and emotion or rather than ground ourselves to rely on only faith and emotion. So I said that mine felt sort of like a deterministic song to me. And that reminded me of Calvinism. I want to talk a little bit about Calvinism today. So Calvinism is all about preordination. A quote about Calvinism from one of the original founders of it is this, God freely and unchangeably ordained whatever comes to pass. So there's five key points of Calvinism. One is that humans are by nature corrupt because of original sin, because of Adam and Eve pulling the apple off the tree and gaining wisdom. We are corrupt and we can't escape it. And our salvation depends on God alone. So in Calvinism, Humans are preordained before their birth, whether they'll have salvation, whether they'll go to heaven, whether they are the elect, or whether they're going to go to hell, whether they're the reprobates. This is all decided before birth. And it's also called Calvinist fatalism because it's the idea that humans only choose good deeds through God's grace. We have no control over our own good deeds. And we are only good or bad because God determined it to be so. Christ's death, like is seen in Christianity, restores the relationship with God, but only for the elect, only for the people that God preordained to go to heaven before their deaths. And again, grace is only for the elect. So if you're someone who's destined to be graced, you can't escape it, which means you can't do something bad because God has determined that you're going to be good. But if you're a bad person, you can't do something good because God determined that you won't. And the final piece is that the elect will never fail in faith because it's all done through the absolute power of God, which goes a step further to say that your faith doesn't even matter because the only reason you're faithful is because God said before your birth that you're going to be faithful so you can go into heaven. I've always struggled with. I see it a little bit clearer now that's a response to rationality, pure faith, but what do you make of this? It's completely eliminating any free will. It's saying anything you do doesn't matter because everything that's going to happen to you your salvation is determined before you're actually born. I've, heard, I've thought about the Calvinists as one does, and I feel like they've been a bit one-dimensionalized in that whenever Calvinism is brought up, it's usually in the term of, of predestination. It does often come off in this predeterministic way in that it's very classist and class-based, and I'm sure in a lot of ways it, it did turn into that where the elite was like oh, i'm rich because god told me i'm rich so sorry i can't really even if i donated to you it really wouldn't matter like you're you're kind of destined to be poor but also isn't there a flip side of it in that if there's no free will that does take away a certain sense of worry right you're like well that's it it's just gonna happen so i feel like a lot of anxiety and fear comes from like i don't know what's gonna happen god please give me the power to control the things I can and not worry about the things I cannot. That's often like a, a, a prayer that I hear. But if it's just like, if it's all, I can't control anything, then you can still do that same prayer. And you're like, okay, that's it. I just live my life and there's nothing to worry about. 
even if it's a pretty shitty life if you're not part of that elite group. Okay, two things. No, I lost the second thing. So let's see if it comes back when I talk about the first thing. If God wills it. Sure. If God wills it. Nihilism grows out of the idea that God is dead, that there we live in an absurd universe with no meaning. But I would almost argue that a nihilistic feeling is the idea that we have no control, we have no free will. But instead, that's the exact opposite. That's saying all meaning is predetermined versus having no meaning at all. So that's interesting. My second point was this, is that I have my philosophy club with my middle schoolers and all they ever want to talk about is do we have free will, right? Can we make any choices by our And I've looked into it a little bit and there are scientific studies that even suggest maybe we don't have free will. Looking at your brain activity, when they look at the electrical activity in your brain, often those electrical impulses happen before your conscious awareness of a decision. Granted, it's like a few hundred milliseconds, but you're making the action, you're doing the action before you're consciously aware of it, which is to say you're not choosing, you're not willing decisions. You're just rationalizing them after the fact. But my idea is always, my sort of opinion's always been this. Even if we don't have free will, I have the perception that I do have free will. I'm living my life as if I did have free will. Even if you're a complete Calvinist and say, you know, things are going to be the way they're going to be. The big thing I got about Calvinists out of this is that every thought, every idea you have was predestined, it was preordained by God. So it's perfectly fine to have your own thoughts, to have your own ideas. You just need to recognize the fact that it was all because of God. Even if we don't have free will, is it enough just to have the sense of it? Because I'm never going to feel like I don't have anything. That's that's a good point. I think about that a lot. Does it matter? I guess yes, right? Okay, so so this is a bit of an anecdote, but this has been my most recent personal explanation of how I think the universe works. <laughs> so, do you mind if I lay it out for you and ultimately bring it back to Calvinism and Please free will? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so. I like to think about it in terms of physical principles, of of massive bodies. So like I think about, I'm walking through New York City, I'm listening to iZimbra on a subway, packed subway full of people generally going in the same direction. And I'm like, where the fuck are all these people going? There's no way that all these people have just as much complicated lives as I do. And of course it's a narcissistic thing, but I can't be the only person that thinks that. How, how? This is just one car. There's like so many goddamn cars, plus the two train and the three train that's running adjacently and the ones going the other way. How are there so many people functioning side by side, but somehow we feel so isolated. And this is why I think based on the scientific principles of like mass and gravity, like how if you're a more massive body, you're going to have like more moons spinning around you and more, uh, you know, maybe a bigger sun that you're evolving around. I feel like each of us of our lives is like a mass going, moving through space time. And if you have, I guess, some sort of free will where like you build up your karma or your good life big enough, or you have this large sphere of influence of positivity, hopefully moving through time space, you're going to have like a bunch of people following around you 
other massive bodies, you know, like kind of following around you and you're going to be influencing other things, but ultimately influenced by something bigger and bigger and bigger in this big thing. And, and we're all just kind of bumping against each other in our own little tiny universes that we're shaping in ourselves, trying to build up enough mass to influence the others. And we're not totally separate. We're still functioning ultimately in the same realm of things. But my existence as Kevin is pretty separate distinctly separate from Devin's existence because you in your mind has really shaped your own view of the world and has developed its own mass and as 23 24 25 year olds they're pretty big but not quite big not quite Jupiter you know we're we might be our own little earth which is pretty good we have one moon that's pretty good but we're all kind of bumping and moving and sliding by each other and influencing each other but we're not fully in one universe. So in getting back to Calvinism and predeterminism, like I feel like you can only have free will to a certain extent. Like you said, probably most of our actions are subconscious. And we like to think about free will in all of our actions, but really we're only talking about a very small percentage of them. Like, right, like only major decisions we're really thinking about free will and minor decisions. Most of the time we're walking about and being alive. We're not really worried about whether we have the free will to go to the bathroom. I guess we do, but like, it just kind of happens. Like I just picked up this pen while I was talking. I don't really care if I have the free will to do that or not. I guess I want it, but I don't know. I'm just going to throw it back to you. Go back into your sphere. What do you think? Well, what I like about your theory is that like in science, we have theories and we have laws and the laws are things we know are going to operate a certain way. I've, remember it being told sort of way, like the law is a machine that you put something in a certain way and it comes out a certain way. So the law of physics, everybody's got to follow the law of physics. So I think it's good to ground your idea of human beings in those laws of physics. I hate to do this. I hate to bring it back to him, but we're going back to Heidegger. We're going back to existentialism. There's a reason Heidegger is the most influential philosopher of the 20th century, because he really says a lot that's, I think, relevant, especially to now, especially to our generation. This, I mean, I think we're like a weird lost generation between millennials and Gen Z. We're aware of TikTok, but we're not on TikTok. I don't know if that's a defining factor. I think it was you who said that to me, right? Your like relationship with TikTok depends what generation you're in. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. Makes, that's a good example. But we have this sort of struggle that we see the universe as absurd. We don't see the purpose. So Satra talks about being condemned to be free, right? that we are inherently free beings. But he does admit that we have our environment, the situation we're born into. There's things you can't escape from. You can't escape the fact you're free in your situation. If I'm born a slave, yes, my mind is still free. I still have free will, but I have whatever the obligations of my master are, whatever the obligations of society. And that can go for anywhere. If you're born rich, if you're born poor, if you're born into a specific religion. So it's these things that we can't escape from. It's these things that determine the way we think in many ways too. It's just the way our brain develops these cycles of socialization. It's called this deep intrinsic parts of our mind that were raised to think in a certain way, the synaptic connections in our brain. But Heidegger says this, he says sort of what you're saying, Kevin, like I don't choose to go to the bathroom. I don't choose to pick up this pen. That's because you're caught in the everyday. You're caught in this position of with everyone else. You're just going along with the crowd. You're on the subway going in a certain direction until something jolts you out of that. Usually a near-death experience or the realization that you just had that, why is this pen in my hand? Or if something's missing, 
right? When you don't, only when you're missing something do you see, really realize what it's worth to you. And in those moments, our, our is our opportunity to move to an authentic mode of being. It's not a good or bad mode of being, but it's an authentic mode where we take every decision from the perception of our deathbeds. And we say, does this give my life purpose? Does this give my life meaning? But what I think you're saying right now, what you're referring to in these spheres of gravity, I like that example a lot, is I think that we can be sucked into other people's gravitational pull, or we can be sucked into the masses' gravitational pull. Tocqueville talks about actually the tyranny of the majority. And he talks about he's this French philosopher and he's talking about the beginning of American society and American democracy. And he says, and it's something that's really especially relevant now, is the problem with democracy is you get to a point where the majority doesn't really care anymore and just does whatever everyone else is doing. And then you're not actively choosing representation. You're allowing someone to take control, some populist, some cult of personality. All of that aside is to say this, I think the gravitational pull is getting caught in the everyday. And I think what we need to do is escape that gravitational pull. We can be our own being, we can make our own gravitational pull, we can create our own, I mean, again, it gets dangerous, that cult of personality, tyranny, whatever the fact, but we have the freedom to make decisions in our situation. It's just, can we get ourselves to that point? Yeah, yes, yes. Well said. Because as you were speaking, you helped me understand a lot and you kind of came to the same conclusion and maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but for me, this gravitational pull theory of existence in trying to relate it back to Calvinism and predeterminism is like, you have a lot of power to shape your own reality. Like the way that you think, whether you think you have free will or you don't have free will is going to shape your perception of the universe. And that's why I'm like, when I'm on the subway, everyone has a kind of different way of looking at the world, but how do those coexist? Like, how does it all coexist in one? And that's what I'm kind of saying is like, it does and it doesn't. And that people are shaping using their minds, like their own interpretation of the world and like living by this rule set that therefore like self-reinforces itself. And maybe around this time of year, like January, that's when you try to like break out of these habit chains and maybe try to go against the flow of things. And it's really hard. Like once you get really caught up, like let's say it's a really tough, abusive relationship, like, and you really want to get out and you have like your other loving friends, like with their massive loving bodies, like pulling you away from Jupiter's uh, gravitational pull, but like you've really enveloped yourself into it. It's not your fault but there's a lot of work to be done and it doesn't just like happen all at once, but it starts with that like change of mindset is that, Oh, this isn't right. Or, Oh, this is weird that I'm doing this. Or like, why am I going with the majority when I'm not really thinking critically about these things? Why did I pick up this pen? I think that's when we really care about free will is when it impacts like our really personal existence, like how we identify with ourselves, because that's something contradicts it, kind of like an asteroid coming through. Kind of like what you said with Heidegger, like you need almost a near-death experience or something. That's just a lot of thoughts, but I just threw them out there, maybe to influence your massive body. Devin. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I think the lens of a relationship is interesting. Because we can very easily, and I think that's actually a good way, you may have just stumbled upon a good way to teach Heidegger being in time, is that a relationship, it's very easy to get caught up in those everyday patterns, the texting at a certain time, the good morning, the good night. And it's very easy to not notice the problems, but it's always that little abrupt fight that comes out of nowhere that seems like it's insignificant. 
that makes everything crumble down. You have two choices when those fights come up. And it could be about something really just dumb and like minuscule and unimportant. Maybe you don't like the way they fold a towel, but then that exposes all of those problems. And you either confront those problems and end the relationship or grow from it, or you just go right back into where you were. Again, well, Heidegger would say there's not a better choice and a worse choice. We might think differently, but there's an authentic and inauthentic way of being. So it's inauthentic to be in that relationship when you know that there's really problems there. Granted, you can still have a good time. You can still feel good. You can still really like that person. The authentic way to be, though, is to confront that problem and grow from it. Hmm. I also find it an interesting way to, to confront the song of mind. Uh, we're talking about like maskers, anti-vaxxers and stuff. It could be a, an argument with a spouse. Like, I need something to change your mind. I don't know. Maybe a few years into a marriage, you're like, whoa, I don't, maybe don't know this person as well as I thought I did. Or you just get into an argument about something like as you do with someone you really love and spend a lot of time with. You get into arguments sometimes and you need someone to change your minds. Maybe that makes that last line a little more sincere of, and it comes directly from my heart to you because it, it's from someone you care about. And that's, that's nice, I guess. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because actually you said something earlier that I kind of want to hop back to, even though it's not really directly related. Hop back to it. Let's hop back to it. You said that Heidegger was actually kind of really related to our generation specifically. But I also think Dadaism is really baked into the humor of our generation as well. Talking about TikTok, there is a TikTok account that I follow called TikTok is Dada. And just stitches and duets these videos that have like a Dadaist humor where it just doesn't make any sense. If you have a TikTok, go look at it. But I think it's baked into our humor. You and I love the concert film Stop Making Sense. And we try to like hop into these bits and and lines of thought that don't really have any rational thought. And that's excites us, excites us and like teaches us stuff. And I think that's in, imperative to like our younger generation because we've been like very traumatized by so many things. <laughs> And also influenced by like Dadaist, I think influenced nonsense comedy, like, I don't know, Spongebob. We bring in a Spongebob quote every single week. And a lot of that stuff doesn't make any logical sense. Like an example where Spongebob is trying to get Gary to take a bath and he's doing all these ways to get Gary to take a bath. And he finally lifts him up out of anger and throws him into the bath and Gary freezes and then pops up right next to, next to Spongebob, defying the laws of physics. That's one of my favorite jokes ever. But as a child, looking at that and shaping my own mind, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. And that's funny. But that's kind of like Isazimbra as well. Like it has this form that's familiar to us and it undercuts it. And like, that's funny. That's interesting. That's exciting. May I introduce this? I think as we start to get to maybe some kind of conclusion here, because Dadaism and existentialism are inherently connected in the fact that they both deal with absurdity. That's the central tenet of existentialism is that we live in an absurd universe. What are we going to do about that? Dada is saying everything is absurd. And I think you brought up the point of trauma because both of these movements are in response to trauma. How do we deal with trauma? How can there be any meaning to the universe? How can God determine everything that happens in our lives if there's a Holocaust, if there's a COVID-19 pandemic, if there's racial injustice, if there's inequality, all these different things, how can there be any meaning in the universe? There can't. It's absurd. It's meaningless. That leads to nihilism. But this is, I think, and this is why I'm saying this sort of consolation of absurdity, is absurdity is dangerous. Dadaist humor is that we can go to the point that nothing matters. 
that there's no point in anything. I think that's why we like it, because if we say nothing matters, if we say there's no purpose, then it's sort of like Calvinism, that everything's out of our hands. Why even try if there's no point, if there's no purpose? And that's why you can be caught up in the, that's how you get caught up in the everyday. Why worry about it? Why try? Let's laugh in the face of it. I think it's the responsibility of ourselves. And I think it's something we need to especially be aware of now. We're facing so many existential crises and issues. And it's so easy to just get caught up. Don't look up. I haven't seen it either. Let's talk a little bit about it. Isn't it about like there's a meteor hitting and nobody wants to listen? That's a classic Devin and Kevin stop making sense line, which is, <laughs> I haven't seen it. Let's talk about it. That's the classic. Yeah, a meteor is going to hit Earth. And that's you react to it i guess that's that's the movie and nobody gives a shit because like what are we going to do it's absurd so you have two choices in the face of a meteor hitting the earth you can say oh my god there's a meteor hitting the earth what am i going to do you have three choices let me take a bet okay i don't care it's out of my hands i can't do anything oh my god it's coming what can we do to stop it or there's a meteor coming it is unavoidable but how am i going to live my life anyway and that's really what existential is about, like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. We must imagine Sisyphus happy. He has this absurd t- task. We have to imagine him happy. Our meteor, I've been excited. All of us <laughs> have a meteor, right? Wow. I've been re- I just read this book, Jose Saramago, Death with Interruption. Definitely recommend it. I'm going to recommend it to you, Kev, and the audience. January 1st, strike of midnight, death just stops. All death stops. And it's fascinating. It takes it from multiple. It's interesting the way he takes it because he says the first people that get affected are the morticians. If there's no death, what do the morticians have to do? They're out of business. So they have a major job crisis and then all the morticians are out of business. And then the life insurance companies, it's very cool. And then death becomes personified and falls in love. It's a very fascinating book. Definitely recommend it. But I've been thinking a lot about death and this limit on our lives, this end, this finality, this meteor that we're all first to face. Because the end of the day, whether a meteor hits tomorrow or you die at 100 years old, there's going to be an end, which says to us, what's the point? If everything's going to end anyway, why try? Why even bother? Why even bother? Let me give it to you. Why even bother? Why even bother? I mean, like, why even bother continuing at this episode? Like we're trying to work towards some conclusion, but why? Why are we even trying to do that? But honestly, Devin, you made me realize something about myself. And I got to say, it's pretty existential. And the next time I'm sitting on the subway and I'm probably listening to maybe the breakdown of cities and I'm getting all riled up in my mind and I'm sitting next to some random person and I'm looking around the D train and there's 40 people going in the same direction and i'm like oh no the universe i'm in my own universe they're in their own universes it's all just a fucking coping mechanism for the ever approaching meteor that's coming from all of us at different times it's just like i can't really fully comprehend that i'm actually there and i actually have a responsibility to everyone because we're all in the same universe and i'm just having a coping mechanism i think i'm just like kind of derealizing myself from the actual existence of things because i'm afraid one day death is gonna come a knocking and i gotta face that fact and i think genuinely i'm being very genuine right now i am absolutely terrified of it i am very afraid of it i don't know who i will be when that happens and i think a lot of my life 
in thinking about it is coping around it. It's the living with the death after, which is why I like to think I have free will, which is why I like to think I can like do things that will prevent that. Of course, like being healthy, but I mean like, oh, if I just like shape my own personal universe, then like my cat won't die. My goldfish won't die, which isn't true. So. Well, there's this Greek philosopher and I can't remember his name and I apologize to that Greek philosopher, but he basically says this. He says that, why do we fear death? It's not death that we fear. It's what comes after. But we shouldn't fear what comes after because here's the deal. Before we were born, existence happened. All of history happened and we weren't aware of it and it had no influence on our lives. Hannibal climbing up the Alps, whatever the case, right? But it had no impact on our lives. So after we die, the biggest thing about dying is that we're worried, well, what goes on afterwards, right? How can the world exist without us? Because like your spheres of influence, like your gravitational pull, leaning towards solipistic, but staying away from it, is that, yeah, I can't understand other people's minds. I can only understand my mind. My mind is my universe. That's why I can't convince people going back to the song mind. What do we do with the fact, you know, that our mind doesn't exist, but this is what this philosophy says, says, listen, listen, we weren't where we didn't care before we were born or we didn't exist. We're not going to care afterwards. So the fact of the matter is death is just a part of life and you move past it. And in the grand scheme of things, our existence is infinitesimally small. It has no effect. We're going to be, whether you die tomorrow or die in a hundred years, you're still going to be not alive for the majority of history, for the majority of the universe. None of this makes me feel good. And it leaves me only to say this. This has been Devin and Kevin. Stop making sense. Thank you so much for listening. Devin, thank you so much for talking about Zimbra for listening to me uh, talk about my own fears of death. And uh, zip, bop, zip, bop, right back to you. Bye, bye, bye.